Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, November 19th, 2015, and I am still alive. I want to personally thank all of you for your get well wishes. Those of you who are familiar with kidney stones have a good idea what I've been going through. Hopefully it'll be over tomorrow. Um, So those of you who have followed me since 2007 know that I have said two things repeatedly and harped on them, and that most of my esteemed colleagues and judges sitting in cases said I was on the fringe of legal theory and basically not credible. I remember one judge actually referring to Neil Garfield and his band of leprechauns. In their view, it was just not possible that rescission could ever work the way the statute said, because that would put all loan closings in a gray area. A borrower at any time could cancel the loan contract and make the note and mortgage void. They backed up their argument against me with the established legal precedent that finality in a transaction is the key element in having a stable economy. So, they said, if I'm right, then the entire economy would come tumbling down. And, of course, there's the issue of how could they sell or bundle loans when all of the loans could vanish by dropping a notice of rescission in the mail by the borrower dropping a notice of rescission in the mail, canceling the note and mortgage. And they also said that there was no such thing as wrongful foreclosure because once you have established that the borrower stopped paying, it didn't matter who did the foreclosure. This was a big change from hundreds of years of uh, precedent in the uh, legal system going back to England, common law England. I said that Uh, that introduces more uncertainty into the marketplace than anything they were arguing, and I said that right trumps finality. The two things that I've always harped on was that rescission levels the playing field, and it's there for that reason, and that there is a fortune of money available to both homeowners, and other consumers in bringing wrongful foreclosure or or wrongful collection actions. 
and lawyers have been missing the opportunity of a lifetime for over a decade. I remember back in 2007 and 2008, I literally had conversations with lawyers around the country who refused to take a case for foreclosure defense, even if they got a $25,000 retainer. They wanted no part of it because they thought it was silly. Thousands of judges in hundreds of thousands of decisions all refused relief to homeowners who were playing by the rules, and these judges found for the banks who never played by the rules and never intended to play by the rules. In other words, they all said I was wrong. Some, as I said, even named me in their decisions and attempted to ridicule me as a conspiracy theorist. As to the conspiracy part, I'll leave that for another day. As to theorizing, there was none of that. I merely read the law as I was taught to do, and as I had learned to do in what is nearly 39 years of practicing law, and came to what I considered to be indisputable conclusions. Another thing that I always said was that all the cases in foreclosure where there were claims of securitization involved the issue of legal standing, and I pointed to the uh, Fordham Law Review article of will the real holder in due course please stand up. They spotted this issue back in 2007, and they were ignored. Legal standing having an injured party, bringing the foreclosure process. And I said that there were no parties withstanding who were bringing the foreclosure hammer down on innocent homeowners to the detriment of innocent investors. Despite all those decisions, the greater weight of decisions across the country, I read, reviewed, and rejected all of the naysayers. I stuck to my guns despite having periods where I wondered if it mattered what I said and whether the law would simply be carried out in a wrongful fashion, which is possible, as we've seen. And now, after enduring eight years of attacks, I feel like it was worth it because the tables are turning. For our inspection tonight are the Patello and Wolf cases, respectively. In one case, Patello, a private investigator and forensic analyst, brought the issue of rescission under the Truth in Lending Act front and center. And in the Wolf case, the court awarded $5.4 million in damages against Wells Fargo following another ruling in another state against Deutsch for foreclosing on a loan that did not exist. Yes, that's right. The homeowners had paid cash. They even put in uh, practically an equal amount to what they paid uh, for the property to improve it. They never took out a loan. Deutsch not only did the foreclosure, they ignored the service requirements and sold the property without any notice to the homeowners. Now, Deutsch and Aquin are paying those people $2 million, a large part of which is punitive damages. The punitive damages 
are there because it wasn't a mistake. They did it on purpose. And the forum of this show does not permit me to go into detail about why they did it on purpose. You can read the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. This is a paradise for lawyers who take cases on contingency. A typical contingency fee is 40%. Now, it's true, the lawyer has to physically invest his own money in litigating the case and doing the investigation and discovery. In the two cases I just mentioned, the contingency fees would be over $2.8 million. Not bad for a day's work. Imagine how much there is to be made on millions of foreclosure actions that were filed illegally and possibly criminally. So let's start with the Patello case in Oregon. That is all about rescission. Patello said he had rescinded. There was no question that he had sent out the notice of rescission, and so the loan contract was canceled and the note and mortgage were rendered void. This does not come from out of thin air. The Federal Truth in Lending Act says these things. The problem is that nobody other than myself and a few other brave souls took that wording seriously from the Federal Truth in Lending Act, TILA. The issue now was whether trial courts could continue pretending that the TILA rescission statute didn't mean what it said, and whether trial courts could ignore the order from the highest court in the land that said everyone got it all wrong. In Jesenowski versus Countrywide, a unanimous Supreme Court decision with Justice Scalia basically saying to the thousands of judges who had changed the wording of the statute to suit their own sense of what's fair, that they had no right to do that. It's called separation of powers under the United States Constitution. It's the legislature that passes the statutes and that commits those laws and the wording uh, to a bill which then gets passed by the legislature and signed into law by the governor. Or, in the case of Congress, gets signed into law by the president. So, Jesenowski was in January, and then somebody had to be first, and it looks like it was Patello, was the first case with a published decision. Patello's arguments were simplicity itself. The statute says that I can cancel a loan if I send a notice of rescission. I sent a notice of rescission. The loan is over. The statute says that the mortgage is void. The statute says all this happens non-judicially. And the statute says that all of this is effective upon mailing. Not effective when the borrower files suit, not effective when the borrower tenders payment, and not effective when a court rules on the legal sufficiency of the rescission. It was clear that Congress wanted to give absolutely no room for banks to stonewall the rescission. And if you look back into the minutes, you'll see that language in the discussion. 
and that if the bank didn't think it was right, the bank needed to bring an action to change things, in other words, vacate the rescission, which was also stated in the statute. So Patello was merely saying, I have no mortgage, and by the way, the note is also void according to the statute. And when it comes down to paying the debt, the creditor is only entitled to principal with no finance or other charges. JPM Chase had a more convoluted argument because they could only do the familiar dance of smoke and mirrors. They said that Patello can't be right because that would enable any borrower to convert the loan from secured to unsecured, a point I have made in front of multiple audiences consisting of bankruptcy lawyers, all of whom rejected exactly uh, that notion, that a borrower could have converted the loan from secured to unsecured. They insisted on filing the bankruptcy petitions and schedules as though the house was secured, despite the fact that they knew that the rescission had been sent. And a lot of people should look back in their paperwork to see if, uh, if they have that rescission that was sent. Many people just forgot about it because nobody wanted to talk about it. If they've got it, then they've got some rights. And they went on about public policy and how this would disrupt the market. The argument being that finality is more important than being right. But the trial court in Oregon denied the motion to dismiss filed by Chase and said that the Supreme Court had spoken, that the rescission was effective when mailed, and that Patello had successfully converted his loan from secured to unsecured, assuming there was an actual loan which is a whole other issue. And this brave judge confronted the hypothesis that the whole world will collapse if borrowers win. The court said, although foreclosing trustees and purchasers at trustees' sales have a significant interest in finality, consumers have a countervailing interest in avoiding wrongful foreclosure. The court went on to say that Jessenowski revealed the majority of federal courts had misinterpreted the will of the enacting Congress. So the court, so the so now the issue before the court, motion to dismiss denied. So now the issue before the court is whether the uh, uh, is not whether the rescission was effective, but what relief Patello is entitled to get. This is an interesting question because he sent the rescission many years ago, within the three years, but that doesn't matter actually as to whether it's effective. And the time to enforce the duties of the creditor has long since expired. So he has a mortgage that will be released by court order if necessary because it's already void by operation of law according to the statute. I'm sure that Chase is not finished, though. They will attempt to raise the issue of whether the rescission was wrongful or in any event not meritorious because the disclosure requirements on the loan 
were met by the originator. But there are two problems with that. Chase was not the lender, and it never paid for the loan. So it has no standing to bring a claim to vacate the rescission. They can't rely on the note and mortgage because the note and mortgage are void. Therefore, and you can't get relief based on a void instrument. That being, and they would have to plead that the loan contract had been canceled by the borrower and now they were seeking to vacate that cancellation. They don't want to say that. So if they try to do it the way they're doing it in other courts, then they're going to do it by motion without alleging that they have standing and a cause of action to vacate the rescission, which we now know is effective by operation of law when it is mailed. The other problem is that even if Chase could somehow snow the court into believing that it was the real creditor, the injured party, the time period in which to bring their action to vacate the rescission is also long since expired. And now that it is established that they neither complied with the statutory duties, return of the canceled note, release of the encumbrance, and paying the borrower all the money he ever paid and paying him all the fees that were paid to other parties for the origination of the loan, now that it's established that they neither complied with the statutory duties nor did they file an action to vacate the rescission, and that years have passed since they were supposed to do one thing or the other, they will be met with the affirmative defense to their pleading, if they file an actual pleading, that the statute of limitations has long since run on their right to collect the debt on the debt after rescission. Let me say that again. Statute of limitations has long since run on their right to collect on the debt after rescission. Checkmate. They lost the note, they lost the mortgage, they lost the debt. The dreaded free house is alive, not because of anything Patello did, but because Chase ignored the statute and failed to comply with the statute. They were attempting to run the clock against Patello, but Patello persevered and won. Or at least I presume he will win, since the court has denied the motion to dismiss, and the factual point is only whether he mailed the rescission, and that is pretty much uncontested in his case. And for the lawyers, remember this, as Scalia said in the Jesenowski opinion, the statute makes no distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions. Every time I talk to a lawyer, they seem to not have read those words. It means that it doesn't matter whether the rescission was right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether it was out of time or out of anything. It is still effective at the time of mailing, and the creditor, whoever that really is, has 20 days from the date of receipt of the notice of rescission to either comply by returning the canceled note, releasing the encumbrance of record, and paying the borrower back, for all that the borrower paid and all that was paid to others as compensation for the origination of the loan, or the creditor, the real creditor, may file a lawsuit asking the court to vacate the rescission. But that's where their problem is. And that's my 
third issue in this broadcast, which is the problem of standing, legal standing. The way securitization was practiced, it was just an illusion. So the creditor side doesn't have anyone, not from my analysis, who would qualify under the definition of a creditor. And they can't use the void note and mortgage for standing because those are void instruments and you can't get any relief based upon a void instrument. At the end of the day, everybody knows everything. So the next issue is the issue of filing lawsuits for wrongful foreclosure, which is becoming increasingly popular as lawyers are collecting huge fees by taking cases on contingency. Finally, there is movement. More lawyers are moving into the field, and a lot of them are personal injury lawyers. The interesting thing about the Wells Fargo case, which is also known as the Wolf case, was Wolf versus Wells Fargo, as Marie McDonald pointed out, that this was the first time that a jury was even allowed to consider whether the use of a robo-signed document was fraudulent. The court said that it could be considered fraudulent and allowed the jury to come back with a verdict of $5.4 million for using a fraudulent assignment. That was found to be fraudulent because it was robo-signed. This opens the door to a multitude of lawsuits because nearly all the foreclosures have fabricated, forged, and fraudulent documents, all of them robo-signed. They may get that $200,000 house, or they may have gotten it, but they end up, if this is properly brought, paying $5.4 million for causing a fraud upon the court and upon the borrowers. So the interesting thing that is happening just in the last couple of weeks is that we're seeing more and more decisions that where the courts are actually getting to understand what is truly involved with this with these claims of securitization and my point has never been that homeowners borrowers whatever should be able to walk away from a legitimate debt but the question is is it a legitimate debt or was it a transaction in which the borrower was enticed into signing documents under false pretenses to the detriment of not only the borrower, but the investors who unwittingly put up the money? If you want to look at what could bring down the economy, it would be allowing things to stay as they are. All that wealth that was sucked out of the pockets of investors and borrowers is sitting with the banks. That money, or half that money, is already lost. Maybe some of it can be gained back through wrongful foreclosures. But something needs to be done to stop the foreclosures from this point forward unless they are, in fact, legitimate foreclosures on a legitimate debt. The idea that right is not uh, the determinative force 
and that finality somehow trumps doing things right, that idea has had its day, and the banks are well aware of the problem that is coming upon them. Rescission directly attacks their ability to enforce 96% of the loans. It directly impacts their ability to do securitization. And, of course, we know that they didn't do securitization because the loans never went into the trusts. But that's another issue. And the issue of using fraudulent documents that were forged and fabricated and, well, robo-signed and then testified to by a robo-witness, that is now grounds for finding that the bank, in the case of Wolf, uh, Wells Fargo, the bank knew what it was doing. It knew that it was doing wrong. And it didn't care because they thought they were big enough to take an occasional hit. Well, it's my job and the mission of this program and my blog to make sure that it goes from the occasional hit to the frequent hit and from the frequent hit to the constant hit. It's time for consumers to take back the marketplace. It's time to end the banks cornering the market on money. That's a difficult concept, I know, for a lot of people. But that's what they did. They basically created their own currency in a shadow banking system that is 50 times the size of the actual total amount of currency in the in the marketplace. Currency defined as currency that is recognized and issued by government. So 50 times may be high. It's certainly no less than 20 times. And that's the problem with the Federal Reserve and with our system. The Federal Reserve can do all kinds of hijinks, but out of tools because they have nothing they can affect the 50 trillion dollars in currency directly or indirectly but they can't affect the quadrillion dollars in nominal currency that is out there and these are being taken as though they are cash equivalent because on their face they are or they appear to be in any event and the accounting firms are allowing the accounting for these things as though they are cash equivalents, even though they have ample information and data that would cast grave doubt on the valuation of assets and the valuation of liabilities and that, in turn, has a direct impact on the capital requirements of these major banks, who I think, if they were made to report according to 
what at least used to be generally accepted accounting principles would be shown to be severely lacking in the required capital in order to operate and should be resolved by the FDIC. And there is, under Dodd-Frank, an adequate provision to do that. And those who say that, you know, the entire financial system will fall apart, what will happen is everybody will be shaken up, but we have 7,000 consumer banks and credit unions that use the exact same electronic uh, um, backbone as the large banks. There's no service performed by a large bank that can't be uh, performed directly or indirectly by the, the smallest bank. So with that, I conclude this, and I thank you for joining me. And we'll see you, oh, I guess it'll be in two weeks. Happy. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.